Welcome to the Coffee House Junkie Podcast. I am your host, Matt Mulder. Enjoy the aromatic atmosphere of freshly brewed Java. The coffee den is now open. Thank you for joining me at the Coffee Den, and welcome to the Coffee House Junkie Audio Podcast. Uh, the seating may be a little crowded. There are at least 15 more visitors than the last time we met. I should mention that the Coffee Den is officially out of Espresso Royale. A week ago, I brewed the last of the beans from Maniac Coffee's Espresso Royale blend. I am taking suggestions on low-acid decaf coffee blends, so if you have recommendations, send them to the comment section on the website. That's coffeehousejunkie.net. This episode's unofficial sponsor is The Steaming Cup, located in the beautiful downtown area of Waukesha, Wisconsin. Be sure to stop in and tell them I sent you. A little secret just between you and me, here's something from their hidden menu. Ask for an Earl Grey latte. It's not on the menu, but they'll make it for you and you're welcome. Just add a little honey and sugar to taste. For more details about The Steaming Cup, visit their website at thesteamingcup.com. Some programming notes to start off with. First, to answer some of your questions, yes, the creative director in episode 15's segment, So Many Books, So Little Time, from the last audio podcast is moi. In recent past, I managed all aspects of a creative department for an international publishing house. Second, why the featured music on the podcast and how do you select featured musicians? Thanks for asking those great questions. Well, to put it simply, I've always enjoyed the marriage of music and poetry. In an upcoming podcast, I'll feature more thoughts on that and uh, maybe fill you in a little on how I choose the musical selections. Finally, to answer some listeners who ask, what do you mean an audience of one? That is a reference to the segment, Keep Calm and Write Something, in episode 15. To answer that question, stay tuned. I will answer that in this episode's segment entitled, An Audience of One. So, what's coming up in this episode? Good question. Glad you asked. It is warm enough in this northern climate to finally open the windows and let the spring air fill the house. Uh, The first segment touches on that in a story called Creative Space. Uh, Recently, the village where I currently lived experienced the first tornado siren of the year. Everyone's fine. Uh, Thankfully, the only dangerous weather was some severe thunder, hail, and a lot of rain. But uh, it got me thinking about our culture's dependency on electricity and technology. When the lights go out is the second segment of uh, this show. The third segment answers listeners' questions in audience of one. And the final segment for this episode is titled, Life is Lived as a Messy First Draft. Creative Space A light breeze from the south carries echoes of a recent place in memory. The chirp and trill of birds under a namelessly bright blue sky set the stage for a gorgeous Sunday afternoon in May. He sits in the old green deck chair on the patio of the apartment with a book in his hand and other books stacked on the patio table. He is fifty pages into the book when he stops. He thinks of another day in May when he lived in a far distant land. He recalls an open kitchen window on a warm day in late May and a cool mountain breeze that moves the curtains like papery fingers. He sees the Japanese maple outside near 
the old barn, and the grapevine clinging to a handmade crude trellis of found pine limbs. At an old wood table he used to sit and work. The sound of various birds chirping and tweeting enters the window. A cardinal peep-peep-peeps from the azalea bush. A blue jay sounds from a low branch of the tulip poplar. A brown wren thrashes along the edge of the garden, and a crow breaks in with a caw from high up in a red oak. On the counter, near the stove, three sticks of incense burn. Curls of smoke dance in the air above the traditional Japanese-style incense sticks. The room is a fragrant lavender and spice symphony. He used to work from this creative space for hours, writing, sketching, and designing. He was a creative director. He worked from his home every Friday. It was a welcomed oasis from the strenuous desert of the corporate landscape. Every artist, poet, and writer has a physical space to go to work, stretch out, and create the ideas and images harbored in the mind. There is much written about creative space, places, and retreats, writing shacks and the like. One author insists that a writer must commit to write for an hour and a half regardless of where or when but it has to be an hour and a half. Another author and journalist writes at the kitchen table while his growing family eats, does schoolwork, and so on. Maybe the space is less as important as the discipline to swim in an ocean of opportunity. These thoughts fill his mind with melancholy. He misses the mountain breeze and that old kitchen table, the sound of the birds outside, the smell of incense mingled with a faint scent of something outside, maybe honeysuckle. But it is time for him to explore new memories and possibilities. When the lights go out. Since 2008, the magazine and newspaper business has changed dramatically. In that time, ebooks have gone from the position of early adapter novelty to an ubiquitous mode of reading literary and journalistic material. Many aspects of this new technology I enjoy. Pulp and ink artifacts still resonate with me, and maybe you as well. There's something exciting about receiving the latest issue of the Small Press Review the American Poetry Review, or the New York Review of Books in my mailbox. And then there's the act of flipping through the inked pages of a publication before deciding what to read first. Or that wonderful parcel that just arrived, a copy of Killing the Buddha. Or the exercise of browsing bookshelves on a public library, running my hand across book spines and discovering a book called The Simple Truths. With new technology, we should consider the ramifications it may have on our culture and society. The temptation is strong to toss out new technology because one part may be destructive while two parts may offer saving knowledge or ease of life or the like. This echoes the caution of a writer of the last century who, in turn, echoed a conversation from the ancient Greeks. There's nothing new here. Just a reminder not to put all our eggs in one basket. 
the dependency on digital content and related devices should be weighed for its vices and virtues. Sometime all it takes for this reminder is a severe thunderstorm that knocks out the electricity that powers a home. Though it is late afternoon, the kitchen and living room are dark. Dark as if it were past twilight. The laptop pulls its power from the battery and lights the immediate area around the kitchen table. It offers time to locate a flashlight, candles, and matches. But the internet router is gone and so is the connection to the world, or rather the cyber world. These items offer nothing more than table space and limited light. The email I was composing will have to wait. It was in that moment that I found a copy of the Sun magazine I have intended to read. In an online saturated culture, everything appears available all the time. It is not that I lost the issue of Sun magazine. It is the pace and bustle and disruption of online life. It is misplaced priorities or ill-placed attentions. This is not to speak ill of web literature. But a printed publication is a long walk beside a deep river. An old pulp and ink magazine or book can be a sanctuary. Now, the Internet offers digital literature as a permanent and easily accessible platform for readers. For example, ebooks provide publishers and authors an easy vehicle to distribute a finished manuscript. I know this firsthand. I used to work for an international publishing house. As soon as a manuscript is completed, the publishing house releases an ebook. If there are any errors or typos, they are quickly corrected and uploaded to e-tailers. That speed is a great feature of this technology. Here is an example of the downside of online content. From time to time, I review web links on my weblog to make sure that readers may still find information referenced in a blog post. Every so often I find that a website is no longer active or has disappeared. The information is gone. The link is dead. It is as if the Library of Alexandria burned or Rome sacked. This is not to disparage ebook or online writers. I understand the accessibility of literature to the general public requires an online presence to promote that literature. But printed books survive wars and disaster and generations. I once read of an underwater diver who discovered a copy of the Christian Bible among the debris of a shipwreck. A few years ago, someone discovered Einstein's diary papers that chronicled his last years. Why is this important? Printed literature illustrates that a writer, publisher, and editor, and the whole publishing and distribution teams commit to delivering a book to readers, a gift to this generation and the next. Someone sacrificed time and resources to risk the production of the written printed word to continue that great conversation. For writers, write well, write daily and persevere. For readers, support those writers who contribute ebooks and online literature. For one day, they may publish a book you find useful when the power goes out and a candle is the only light in a dark place.
an audience of one. So what does it mean, an audience of one? This moves towards the question, why do poets and writers write? Sometimes you need to write, if only for an audience of one. I have entertained that thought for many, many years. The kernel of the idea began with a statement my writing teacher made in class one spring afternoon. It was a small class, and the professor instructed the students to begin a novel. As the semester progressed, several students developed their fantasy novels, historical romance stories, dramas of middle-class Americans dealing with the death of a grandparent. But I confess, I started the class with absolutely no idea for a novel. None whatsoever. I had nothing. So I reached for something that was familiar, an insider's life at a private religious school. Many published authors fictionalized biographical material, so I chose that path for my yet-to-be-written novel. First-hand experience, plus selected vicarious experiences gleaned from other students, populated the opening chapters. Not more than a few chapters into the novel, my writing professor privately pulled me aside. She told me that she was not comfortable with the direction of the novel. You see, I attended a private religious university, and my observations bordered on... Well, scandal. Whether she warned me because she did not want to see me expelled or because she thought it her obligation to warn me as a duty to her employer, I cannot say. I do not know if the professor directed her comments that afternoon to me or to another student or to the class in general. But on that one spring afternoon in class, she said something I will never forget. She stood in front of the old oak desk and said, When a writer writes a novel or a short story, the writer should write what he or she would want to read. If the writer does not want to read the story, why should I, as a reader, desire to read it? Write your story even if your eyes are the only eyes to ever see the manuscript. That nugget of truth, an audience of one, expanded thanks to other sources. Think of Emily Dickinson. Many of her poems were never published in her lifetime, never distributed to other people, and in most cases stashed in a private cabinet in her bedroom. Why would she write if she is the only audience? Or have you ever read Robert Louis Stevenson's dedication to Treasure Island? I know, it is often overlooked when reading the book, but I noticed that dedication when reading it to my children. It reads, To S.L.O., an American gentleman in accordance with those classic tastes, the following narrative has been designed. It is now, in return for numerous delightful hours and with the kindest wishes, dedicated to my affectionate friend, the author. Stevenson references one person. Was the book written for that one individual soul? Yet it has attracted the readership of thousands upon thousands of people in more than a century. If you write for only one person, whether that be your muse, your mentor, or to S-L-O, then write. Write for that one soul, whether it is a collection of poems, a novel, or a memoir. Write for that intended audience. Even if it is an audience of one, it may find hundreds and thousands 
of readers. Life is lived as a messy first draft. How do you explain a poem? I thought about that question this weekend after a private poetry reading session. A few poets gathered under a full moon to read new work. I caught myself wanting to explain each poem before I read it, but due to the lateness of the hour, I read the poems without introduction or context. It is the same matter I read most poems, because most poetry books do not include annotations of each poem. Only later do I learn from another source that a father wrote a poem to his son on the eve of war. Another from a son to his father explaining his choice to pick up a pen instead of a spade. The context enhances the poem. A couple years ago I received a note from an editor of a literary journal about the publication of one of my poems. The editor asked to provide a sentence that might enhance the reader's experience without explaining the poem. I thought about this for a few days and discovered it was a challenging task. When I am invited to read my work, I often introduce a poem with a brief explanation on its origin or formal construction. That is what I did when I read that poem for the first time at an event at Poetry at the Pulp. The Pulp is a private club below the Orange Peel in Asheville, North Carolina. I introduced the poem by saying that it began as a formal hyboon, but on the way from my head to the page, the blues perverted it to something other than the intended poetic form. Maybe that is a lowbrow explanation of the poem form and creative process, but it seemed to work for that audience on that night. Maybe each audience requires a different introduction to a poem or a poem cycle. The note I sent the editor was different from what I shared at the pulp. I replied to the editor that life lived as a messy first draft is this poem. So, no do-overs, no edits, just a first and only draft. Crab Creek Review published that poem, entitled, The Last Night at the New French Bar. Hope you enjoyed this episode of the Coffee House Junkie Audio Podcast. This episode is produced by your host and Coffee House Junkie, me, Matt Mulder. Thanks to this episode's unofficial sponsor, The Steaming Cup, located in Waukesha, Wisconsin. Don't forget about asking for that secret hidden menu item I told you about at the top of the show. Check them out at thesteamingcup.com. Finally, a very, very special thank you to Lee Tyler Post for permission to use his song, Life Without Fences, in between segments. I first heard his work on the Great American Music Hour, hosted by Jerry Jodice. He's a really great guy. I think you'll enjoy his music. And you can learn more about how to get all of Lee Tyler's six studio albums on his website. That's LeeTylerPost.com. And you'll learn a whole lot of information about him, and I think you'll really enjoy um, his music as much as I do. I'll provide web links and other details about him and his music on the website. That's coffeehousejunkie.net. Closing out the show is the title track of Lee Tyler Post's Life Without Fences. Hope you enjoy it, and see you next time. A 
life without guesses, a life without fences. I know you don't love me anymore. Yes, I know you don't wait there by the phone. I can see it in your eyes. I can tell that. 